Welcome to Crohn's and Colitis Perspectives on ReachMD. This series is produced in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, providing updates and driving innovation in IBD research, education, and clinical support. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and joining me is Dr. John Betteridge, Dr. Tom Judge, and Dr. Phil Stein. And we're talking a little bit about issues in gastroenterology, but one of the big ones I have as a primary care physician, especially with three of you here, is when is a good time to refer? When should we be reaching out to you for help and guidance? And maybe we'll start start from a pediatric standpoint, maybe. So I think we're here talking about an inflammatory bowel disease, and I think I really strive for early diagnosis because a lot of our treatments really work best the earlier in the course you get it, as we found kind of the disease is kind of more progressive, so really getting treatment before a lot of the damage is done. So yes, early diagnosis is very important. So kind of some of the symptoms that we might look at for inflammatory bowel disease, it might be a lot more obvious with ulcerative colitis than it is with Crohn's where sometimes the symptoms could be a little bit more subtle. But you might look for some of the classic findings in terms of diarrhea, abdominal pain, blood in the stool. But with more specifically in pediatrics where you have Crohn's where it could be a little bit more subtle, some of the things we might look for would be things like growth failure, so someone to have a fair bit of weight loss or an extended period of time of not gaining weight, as well as also kind of an extended time of not having increase in height or having delays in puberty. That's interesting you say it because my initial thought would have been I would have obviously been thinking of diet and family support and those things, but the first thing that doesn't come to your mind is thinking about these conditions, and yet it could be very problematic if you don't get to it soon. You, like you said, you don't get that early chance to attack it. Right. So, I mean, I think definitely if you have kind of more of the history where other family members have it, I think you might be a little bit more attuned to those symptoms. And definitely anything could be acute. Like there are a lot of different viral illnesses or bacterial infections that could cause a diarrhea or abdominal pain. But once it starts getting past the two weeks or more, then I think you start to get a little bit more concerned that it's not infectious. But I think as a primary care doctor, you could always send a stool culture if someone's been on antibiotics, C. diff, and kind of make sure that those are at least cooking so that way when once someone's gotten to the next step of seeing a gastroenterologist, those things have already been ruled out. Sure, sure. Dr. Judge, what about with adults? What what should we be doing? Well, obviously with adults, it's a little bit more challenging with respect to diarrheal illnesses because irritable bowel is such a big part of the, the adult population in presenting with uh, abdominal pain and diarrhea syndromes. But I think certainly the worrisome signs that were alluded to earlier in terms of bleeding, really prolonged diarrhea and weight loss, those are are things that really ought to prompt a GI investigation. And obviously, then, someone who's had a more prolonged series of abdominal pain that is unexpected or unusual components of their diarrheal illness. So if they're waking up in the middle of the night, that's not a characteristic of irritable bowel syndrome. And those are the sorts of things that ought to prompt a referral. Dr. Betters, let me shift it up a little bit. What drives you crazy? Like, what patients do we send you? You're like, gosh, they could have handled that. You know, we're unnecessarily referring. None. There's no patient that that is referred, you know, for consideration that I would say that they shouldn't have been. I think okay. I trust, you know, my, my colleagues in the community to, you know, if they're uncomfortable, that's when you should refer. That's when it should be, you know, that that's the easiest. And I think the best definition is if this seems like something that's beyond your ability to, to take care of or, you know, and even in the absence of some of these alarm symptoms that we're talking about, 
I think it's time to refer. Are there things that maybe put a different way we should be thinking of or working on to become better equipped so we maybe wouldn't have that need to refer? Like what sort of things like that? Certainly, I think where you're working, you, know, you gave an example of you know not having you know GI consultants readily available in, in where you were working at a point. So I think you know depending uh, where you are in this country and, and your toolkit, you know, will need to be expanded accordingly. And I think there are some things you can do, you know, sort of non-invasively. So as gastroenterologists, one of the you know one of the keys and to us taking care of this disease is we can visualize it directly with endoscopy. And we could take samples with mucosal biopsy. So outside of that, most of my, you know, my primary care colleagues are not going to be able to do that. And, and so I think short of that, though, checking the stool for inflammatory markers is, is something that's readily available in almost every lab. Most, most hospitals will do it internally now, or it's a short send out. And it's highly sensitive and fairly specific for at least an inflammatory condition of the bowels, whether that be infectious or inflammatory bowel disease or some other thing. So it will really help you separate that non-inflammatory diarrhea of irritable bowel syndrome from an inflammatory diarrhea with an infection or maybe even IBD. Do you see cases, Dr. Judge, where people might have colitis and it burns out? You can see that, but it tends to be people who've had the disease for an extended period of time. There are individuals who have a single episode of severe, what we call acute self-limited colitis, where they have, you know, an inflammatory colitis with diarrhea, they may have bleeding, and that resolves completely. But that's an unusual sort of situation. The majority of people with either Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, they tend to have a chronic disease. It may remit for a period of time where they'll have no symptoms, then they may flare up at a later point. So that's the more common kind of situation. And for those people, it can be very frustrating because they feel they're over it, I guess, and then exactly. it comes back. And when that happens in those cases, do you keep them on suppressive medication or do you take them on and off? What do you guys usually do in those situations? Depends on the frequency at which they have their flares. I mean, someone who has a single flare and they may go for, you know, a year or two without a flare, you may want to just treat them for their flare. If someone has more frequent episodes, certainly if they need to use steroids on a regular basis, those are individuals who really need to be on the maintenance treatment. If they also seem to have more progressive disease, a very serious course of disease where they're having weight loss or other complications, those are individuals where you're more likely to accelerate the type of treatment, and that's where you want to be very aggressive in terms of the types of therapies. And most of the therapies, like the biologics, those really work best if you use them on a long-term basis. So those individuals need to be on a maintenance program to maintain the effectiveness of those medicines. Let's talk for a second the difference between inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome and then what we can do maybe through history and exams to, to kind of point out the difference. So let's start, first of all, with maybe irritable bowel. Maybe you can describe irritable bowel. Sure. And irritable bowel is especially common. It's probably the most common reason why a patient will visit a gastroenterologist in, you know, in the office. And, and it typically, you know, I describe it to patients as a disorder of the efficiency of your digestion and, and elimination. So I'd say, you know, so your bowel habits are changed and it's associated with pain, usually lasting at least six months where you'll have abdominal pain associated with a change in bowel habits. And that could mean that you are constipated, 
It could mean that you have diarrhea or, or at least, uh, you know, less informed stools associated with this abdominal pain, or it could mean that you have either or both. And, you know, a lot of times it will be directly relatable to diet and other things in your life, stress, lack of sleep, medications, and things like that. And with inflammatory bowel disease is, is something that's unique and different and is not a disease of digestion. It's a disease of your immune system uh, where your immune system is disordered and dysfunctional. And you guys might want to comment on that, you know, what the difference there might be. Right. Well, one of the other big challenges is that often, or not often, but on occasion, you'll have patients who have both conditions. So just because you have inflammatory bowel disease doesn't mean that you can't have irritable bowel. And then it's a challenge to figure out a particular episode of diarrhea. Mm. Is this due to a worsening of their irritable bowel syndrome because perhaps they have more stress in their life, their diet has changed, or is it a flare of their inflammatory bowel disease? That's a good point. Probably 25 to 30% of Crohn's patients will also have irritable bowel syndrome as part of something that they deal with. And so they'll actually have, it's more, more likely, much more likely, probably about 5% to maybe 6% of Americans have irritable bowel syndrome. And so we're talking about a, a large proportion of the patients with inflammatory bowel disease having IBS, just right. like you're talking about. Exactly. Well, Dr. Stein, yeah, I was going to say in the pediatric group, what do you see? Do you see probably more inflammatory bowel or do you see irritable as well? I think we actually see our fair share of irritable and probably that does outnumber the amount of inflammatory bowel disease as well. And yeah, speaking to that point in terms of, I think you really have to kind of differentiate between which is going on in your inflammatory bowel disease patients because the symptoms don't always correlate to the actual inside in terms of if you actually take a look with the scope, if you do blood work or the stool markers, is there actual inflammation? So if someone's complaining of symptoms, do I need to change the regimen they're on? Were they actually treated well? There are other reasons for those symptoms. What sort of things should a primary care doctor do if they suspect one or the other? Are there certain tests we should be ordering, stool samples, blood work? What, what should we be doing? I think the history is the most telling. Right. Yeah, I think we, we talked a little bit about nocturnal bowel movements. Having to awake from sleep to have a bowel movement is much more you know, closely associated with inflammatory diarrhea of all type. However, the degree of pain for some patients now, irritable bowel syndrome sometimes can cause debilitating pain and somewhat debilitating symptoms in patients with severe irritable bowel. However, you can get an idea for the nature of the pain. Is it immediately after eating? Is it sharp? Or is it something that you frequently have only when you're you know, having a bowel movement and immediately after you kind of get a relief from your pain with your bowel movement? That's more indicative of irritable bowel than inflammatory bowel as opposed to progressive or constant pain that's sharp and doesn't really change whether you have a bowel movement or not might be more consistent with inflammation. And as well, in terms of the irritable bowel, sometimes you may have diarrhea and then have periods of kind of being relatively normal or even having constipation or kind of back and forth between diarrhea and constipation, where I think tends to be if you have inflammatory bowel disease, that's going to be a little bit more consistent and more likely the the description of the stool and things may may also be a little bit So the stool different. studies will be helpful for the primary Stool care. studies are helpful to exclude other disorders. So, again, someone who has a diarrheal illness, you want to make sure that they don't have an infection. Mm-hmm. I find that blood tests are also important. Again, a blood count can sometimes reveal an anemia that's unexpected. And, again, you wouldn't expect that in your old bowel. One of the things that, at least in adult populations, you need to consider other disorders that could occur. So it's unusual to think about celiac disease. That We tend to think of that often in children. But 
that can present in adult populations that they may have had a very mild form and they are now presenting later on with a diarrheal illness and it turns out to be celiac disease. One of the things I would think is tough, I know it's tough in primary care, is it seems like you need a lot of follow-up on these patients and to get the details and to see them. Do you get them in for regular visits, say I'll see you every two weeks, every month or whatever? How do you, do you deal? Because the variability can be great. I mean, I think definitely with my inflammatory bowel disease patients, I want them in very frequently. I, I would say anyone on a biologic or someone that I at least classify as more moderate to severe disease, I really try to have them in a minimum of every four months. But if I think they're going through a tougher period of time where I think they don't have that disease under control, I try to have them in more frequent until I feel like they're in a good place. What do you guys think? I'd say that the, much the same. I think when they're initially being diagnosed and being you're initiating treatment, I tend to see them much more frequently to make sure, number one, they're responding to the medications that we're trying, and two, that they're adjusting to this new disease process. Again, with inflammatory bowel disease, these are really chronic diseases. They have big impacts on lifestyle and what the patient has in terms of expectations, and a great deal of education is necessary early on. Once the patients have kind of adjusted to their disorder and have, you know, had a relatively mild course with regard to their disease, you can actually back off to some extent in terms of the frequency of their visits, as long as you have some way that they can communicate with you rather rapidly if they develop a flare. What about if someone has some concerns, studies maybe we should get before the visit that would help us in making a determination. Obviously, I think the key point I'm getting from all of you, which I think we ought to stress, is the history is probably the biggest thing because they're telling you a lot of the story. But any tests ahead of time that you'd want to see that would help you? Right. So in addition to the history, I think that a blood count is is essential. Someone comes in with, we typically think of alarm symptoms as, you know, any diarrhea with blood, any diarrhea associated with things like temperature change, so fever and things like that. And that evaluation and, you know, certainly diarrhea with with severe pain could be irritable bowel and and, and not inflammatory diarrhea. So in that presentation, I think a blood count is very helpful. It'll tell you if a person's anemic, but also if this is the initial presentation, do they have, you know, an elevated white count of leukocytosis, which maybe points you more towards, you know, infectious, you know, cause. And I think initial stool studies, certainly if someone's had diarrhea more than a few days, weeks worth or more, and especially if it has some of these features to it, rolling out infections, there are non-invasive inflammatory markers, both of blood and stool, which uh, any doctor can order, any provider can order, I should say, and those can be helpful. Uh, about two out of three patients with Crohn's disease will have an elevation in what we call serum inflammatory markers, the C-reactive protein or, or erythrocyte sedimentation rate, C-reactive protein, probably a little bit better. So that's what I use in my practice. I don't really use the ESR anymore. And uh, stool inflammatory markers, we used to check for fecal leukocytes, which is not really a very reliable test. And now there's quantitative markers, fecal lactoferrin or fecal calprotectin, which look for protein markers on the top of white blood cells on the surface of white blood cells that would be present in the stool. So white blood cells in the stool, again, a marker of inflammatory diarrhea. So those things there would be extremely helpful and move the the ability of the gastroenterologist to make a diagnosis sooner and more effectively. Yeah, one of the things we're always trying to teach is a residency program, teaching the residents is 
try to, if you're going to send somebody to a specialist, help them out a little bit, like do a bit of a workup and try to find things. So some of these questions are really helpful because you can, there are things you can do that you may not have the answer or you may need support if you go into a biologic or whatever. But the point is you can at least help in making the diagnosis. Right. I would also though caution that you don't want to overdo it either because some of these tests do come up with an expense and Mm -hmm. it depends on what their insurance coverage is like. So calprotectin's an excellent test. But I've had patients who their insurance doesn't cover that, and right. that, that's going to be a considerable expense for them. So they may not need that right away. That might be a test that's in someone who you've made the diagnosis of mm-hmm. an inflammatory bowel disease where they suddenly have a change in symptoms, and you don't know, is this irritable bowel a flare or is this a flare of their uh, inflammatory bowel disease? That's where the calprotectin might be very, very helpful. I remember a few years ago, I wasn't with GI, but a run on PET scans. People were like, all the residents were starting yep. to order PET scans. You're like, right. well, slow down. You know, they, these are very expensive tests. Right. So. And they have inflammatory bowel disease panels, you know, serologic panels. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if all that is, is necessary before they see their GI referral. Right. I think they're useful once you've made the diagnosis. If you have a concern about is this Crohn's disease versus is this ulcer colitis, sometimes that will add a little bit to your diagnosis. But I don't think coming into the GI physician with an IBD panel is cost-effective. I think. And, and I think, it, again, it goes back to that point. The history is so key. Right. Yeah, and I actually agree. I think I would caution against primary care doctors ordering it because I think it's not useful for the diagnosis. It actually, yeah, is more helpful in terms of differentiating which type at of inflammatory at bowel point. disease. Yeah. And right. I think sometimes patients come more anxious thinking this antibody was positive, but it can be positive just to control population. So I think since it's not for the diagnosis part, I would leave that till someone decides that it's necessary. What do the three of you think about direct-to-consumer advertising? I know there's a lot of talk, especially about GI. <laughs> right now you could be watching a ball game or you could be watching a political program. It, it seems like they're saturating the market, different products. But what about that whole concept? Has it been helpful at raising questions or are people over, are coming in with diagnoses in their mind or what, what's going on? I'm not a big fan of the direct marketing because they push a particular medication. And although they raise awareness of these disorders – I think commercials are really driven by the desire to sell a particular medication. Mm-hmm. And I just, I find that not just for the inflammatory bowel disease medicine. Like across but, the board. But across the board, I, I don't think they're all that helpful. I think if you want to talk about disease awareness, I, I think that's fine. I, I just don't think the commercial aspect is necessarily helping. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to get the information out there. I mean, once you kind of have your patient more aware and they could at least bring out the discussion. I think sometimes certain medications scare off patients or parents. And even though if it might be the right medication for them, I think having more of the names out there sometimes is helpful. But also when you're kind of giving a a specific name to someone and they think, I want that because I saw it in a commercial and it might not be appropriate, that's when it becomes problematic. I know in GI in particular, there's been a number of famous individuals who have had various battles, that always seems to raise awareness in a positive way. In fact, usually it turns into more screening, which is always helpful. And of course, with with gastroenterology, especially with colonoscopy and tests like that, you can make a big difference with screening. I think and certainly in that regard, and, and having individuals who have, you know, sort of a normal lifestyle, but may have Crohn's disease. I think that's very helpful for patients coming in that they know that this is not the end of their life, that they don't have to change everything that they plan. Yeah, I think especially in pediatrics, I mean, parents get very worried, like, what kind of life will my child have? And if you have people from all different 
backgrounds, different jobs, different things, seeing that they can still achieve their dreams, I think they realize they don't have to just stop and kind of be sick all the time. They can still do what they what they strive to do and keep on working. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. My guests are Dr. Phil Stein, Dr. Tom Judge, and Dr. John Betridge. One last question I wanted to ask is kind of that interplay between the diagnosis and health maintenance and how much can a patient do to make their lives better when we're talking about these two conditions? Patients can really make a difference in their own lives, and I really believe that. And I think that Crohn's and Colitis Foundation and, and some of the things we touched on about disease awareness and other people involved in advocating for patients with Crohn's and colitis help that. But really what that's all about is patients making a difference in their own lives and in the lives of their fellow Americans or fellow people around the world with these, with these conditions. And so I think it makes all the difference. I agree. And the one thing I do tell my patients, particularly those with Crohn's disease, is stop smoking. That has such a big impact on Crohn's disease. So one of the biggest takeaways is we should all get our patients to stop smoking, but right. that's another reason. Yeah, I mean, I think there are lifestyle things you could do, but I think probably even taking your medication, something simple as that. Right. If you prescribe something, it's because you think it will help the patient. It doesn't help if it's sitting in the bottle. So if true. you wanted them to actually get it, then I think taking it is really going to be the best thing they could do to really help their own disease. Thanks all of you for taking the time to join us today. And I want to thank those who took the time to watch and listen. We appreciate it as well. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you very you. much. That was great. The preceding episode was brought to you in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. If you have missed any part of this discussion or to find others in the series, visit reachmd.com slash foundation.